Welcome to Catalogs and Noise. My name is Joe, and today I'm going to be talking about The Little Man, which is the fourth collection of comics by the artist Chester Brown. So The Little Man is a collection of the leftover miscellaneous stuff from Yummy Fur, the stuff that was not serialized into a comprehensive story, this stuff that is not um, part of a larger project, it seems. Uh, I gotta say, I don't have a whole lot to say about this. I don't have any kind of grand thematic ideas or big um, intellectual kind of um, points to start off on. Uh, it, it's, it's quality is kind of all over the place. It's, uh, some of it does not hold up. Some of it, I think, is you know among the best that Brown produces. But I don't really know that I see something central that defines it which is what I'm looking for. Not that it is meant to do that. I don't mean that to be a slight against this. I think Brown is very clear that this is what it is, being a collection of leftover work for completists to enjoy. So I'm glad it exists, but um, I don't know. I think looking through it this time, I was a little bit underwhelmed in its totality. So if there is anything cohesive to kind of... um, anchor the discussion, I thought that it very much follows the trajectory that I laid out in the first podcast, which is um, you definitely see the evolution and the different um, periods of Brown kind of moving through. So the first, I don't know, let's say half of the work, which all seem to be coming from the early to mid 80s, are very much Ed-like in their kind of absurd surrealism. Um, their kind of um, messagelessness. I mean, that, uh, that there, there's not, it doesn't seem to be anything that important trying to be said. Unlike Ed, which I think I argue does have a lot of very interesting ideas. Um, this just seems to be kind of floating around in the same territory but doesn't really do too much. When we get towards the end, I would say the last half to last third of this text, you start to get a more mature sense of Chester's comic growth. The next set really starts to look more biographical in nature, starting with uh, his work Helder. And that stuff seems more along the lines of the Playboy and I Never Liked You, these introspective pieces that are more about the kind of contemporary artists than they are about the youth. But they're definitely interested in Brown himself as subject. And I actually think those fare a little better than the earlier pieces do. And finally, even at the end of this book, I would say the last three pieces in particular look forward to some of the more research heavy academic works that Brown will do later in his life um, in paying for it and Jesus wept and that stuff I think comes through very well. So even though he's only starting to kind of broach that new material when these are being written with Louis, uh, Louis real real Louis real, I think um, you can start to see that that evolution in his, um, I think, style and the just kind of changing um, interest as he moves through his career. So, you know, what I plan to do basically is just kind of move through all of these like I usually do in wrap-up episodes, even though this is not a wrap-up episode, um, and just kind of give a, a sense of the overview and a sense of the time. Um, I'm going to try and say something about each one, but I don't think I'm going to go that deep in any of these. Uh, One thing that I was curious about, though, is the work that comes out after Yummy Fur, which is Underwater. And I know there's at least four editions of that. And it seems that that is not featured in this book, nor is it available anywhere. I just started the very um, beginnings of research on that, so I want to kind of you know, find some of that work that is, um, you know, not collected in this work. And there seems to be other Chester Brown work floating around that um, he did with other people collaborated on that 
I do want to, you know, find and talk about when we finally do wrap up Chester Brown in a couple weeks. The other thing that seems to be absent from this is any of the New Testament biblical work that Brown was doing. Um, I don't, I've never really seen that play out um, either. I don't know where you can find that. I'm going to look. But it seems that at least in some of these yummy fur issues he was putting out, uh, I think it's the gospel according to Mark and his, his kind of take on that. So there, this isn't um, definitive. This isn't everything that's out there. And, and Brown in a almost, uh, you know, very exacting way uh, lays all this out in the preface where he talks about the rules for the book and his rationale behind it. And uh, I always appreciate that kind of um, specificity and uh, uh, from an artist, you know, he definitely seems to be, you know, a fan and catering to the needs of a fan that would appreciate that kind of thing, which I think I fall into the category of. So I'm going to move through these texts. We'll see how that goes. Um, So the very first thing we get is the toilet paper revolt, which uh, is just kind of ridiculous, although I think it has its charms. Um, The first thing I wanted to talk about, though, is, you know, as much as I find this, you know, just kind of um, silly, I like that it is explained on the cover. Um, I didn't like this cover at first, which is essentially just a another, you know, comic, a 15-panel comic that is Brown thinking about, you know, himself producing the Toilet Paper Revolt, I guess, as a younger man. And um, until I got the footnotes and the rationale for why he did that, I just thought it was kind of a throwaway idea, a little unimaginative. But he actually... Uh, describes in the footnotes that he did it because he was trying to kind of go along with the trend of the time, which was these alternative comic artists that were penning um, covers for for major works. And he cites, too, uh, Chris Ware's Candide, which I had no idea about and am kind of fascinated with right now, and Seth's cover of the portable Dorothy Parker. I had seen the Seth cover before, and I think it's very well done. I like Seth a lot. Um, the cover is really just a kind of portrait of her done in his very distinctive style. But the back has these almost um, collage of, of I think, what is uh, images that are demonstrating her short stories that looks like a traditional sequenced comic piece, which I thought was very interesting. And that was new to me. Um, so... I think he's trying to kind of move in the mode of those things. And um, I don't think he's being uh, unimaginative anymore. I think he's just trying to experiment, try new stylistic, um, you know, terrain to, to articulate his, his vision. And I like that he tries it on a piece that is, you know, um, not cohesive. You know, this seems... This work seems to lend itself to this experimentation more so than something like Ed or the two biographical comic works, which I think demand a more central focus. Uh, just going back to the, the Chris Ware Candide thing, though, um, that is very similar to this because it is the cover, right? That work tries to um, starts the story of Candide, uh, I think, it probably covers the first like two or three chapters and then basically, you know, gives an ellipses and says, open the cover to see how all this turns out. That's not what Brown is doing, but I think what Ware is doing is kind of brilliant. You know, it's done in his very, um, his style, which is the roundish figures. And, you know, uh, it's not at all trying to capture the realism of Candide, but it, um, it's it has some brutal depictions that that I think are reminiscent of Candide, and I think that style kind of speaks to Voltaire's tone. Candide is one of my favorite novels uh, ever, and I, I would never think on paper that Ware's style could make it work, but by demonstrating the harsh um, visuals, a hanging man, for say, in this kind of bubbly world, it does oddly capture it. Um, that's something I'm going to have to look into more closely. 
Anyway, what uh, Brown is doing, I think, is is maybe almost like apologizing for the uh, the slight quality that uh, could be argued the the toilet paper revolt um, demonstrates, and perhaps maybe apologizing for any kind of you know juvenile tendencies in this book, which I think speaks to Brown overall, him being kind of um, uh, self-deprecating. And being a kind of sensitive aesthetic, uh, you know, sensitive to the aesthetics of, of what he's putting out there. I do like that he doesn't hold anything back. I think some of the stuff in this text is very crass and maybe even embarrassing for him. But as I've made the point before, it, it's brave to put it out there. You know, um, it, it demonstrates a kind of artistic integrity that I think... Um, might be lacking all too much these days. So what is the toilet paper revolt? Bunch of toilet rolls, revolt against a guy. Um, the, the, it's not very interesting. The, the one thing that is striking to me, though, is the protagonist of this peach, which is just a um, shirtless man in blue jeans, doesn't really strike me as a typical Chester Brown figure. I mean, this is early. This is essentially, you know, one of the first things he creates and puts out into the world. But the uh, the figure looks more like um, like a, uh, a what is his name um, um, a Raymond Pettibone kind of figure the uh, the artist that uh, well a fine artist but the artist that did a lot of uh, punk rock album covers for SST in the eighties um, it, it has a kind of like like raw punk rock kind of aggressive look to it that I, I would imagine I would see on a black flag or an, a Minutemen's album cover. Um, so I, I think that maybe, you know, places this in a time. I mean, it, it's being penned around that time. And I found that kind of, kind of, uh, yeah, 1980, that kind of uh, historical overlap pretty interesting. But beyond that, it's just toilet paper rolls. Um, moving on, the next one is City Swine which I thought was very interesting, actually. This does start to look like more typical Chester Brown artistry. This looks like they could be characters that show up in Ed and um, inhabit that world. The one thing I thought was interesting, it's basically just a couple people sitting on a uh, stoop and talking about the, um, the, the kind of legends of pigs in this urban space. And the, the older man, you know, tells these kids about, you know, where the pigs might have gone. And it, it's kind of silly. But at the end, you get a pig that actually kind of pokes its head from underneath a uh, the stoop. And it's a good panel. Uh, I like the idea that we're returning to this kind of urban scene where secrets lie. I think this is very much in keeping with Ed. And I think it demonstrates... Um, Brown's general sense of, I don't know, paranoia, the sense that there is a hidden world, particularly in cities, that is not being talked about, that, um, you know, that, that holds secrets. Um, I think that's pretty uh, interesting. So there's a couple things here that I think are just kind of surrealist noise. Um, one of them is the walrus blubber sandwich which, you know, has aliens and violence and just kind of, uh, you know, goofiness. Um, there's a couple more that I think are similar that, I don't know, have, there's no real attempt for a message. Um, it's just kind of, kind of nonsensical. I think uh, Garbage Day is another one of those. Another sense of urban menace in that, too, where you have um, these these two women taking the garbage out and all of a sudden it's, there's a, a body in one of the bags that runs away. You know, their kind of casualness is juxtaposed against the, uh, the kind of terror and absurdity of the situation. I think that's pretty smart. That also has this kind of sense of, of dread underneath it. When, um, at the very end, one of the women says that it's, Oh, my, my husband's a police detective, which, I think speaks a lot to Ed and those mass policemen and the idea that there is almost a systemic menace, you know, that, um, that threatens the, the innocents that walk around. 
Um, another one like that was um, Help Me Dear, which uh, I don't even remember all that much. It's just kind of um, throwaway stuff. I don't know that there's much being said there. Help Me Dear is, uh, I don't know, just, just kind of slight. It's just about like kind of suburban sloth. These uh, characters just, just sitting around. I don't, yeah, I don't know what's trying to be said there. It, it seems like the writings of like a, a young 20-year-old, you know, just trying to kind of work out a voice, I think. There are a couple comics in here that are, you know, stylistically strange, I noticed. One is Mars and the other one is um, Brad's Enlightenment. And Brown talks about in the footnotes how he created these. Basically, he randomly opened up comics that he had on his shelf and got ideas from the visuals and the layouts of those panels, repenned them and constructed stories from them that seem to create somewhat cohesive narratives. As an experiment, I guess it's a noble undertaking. I don't really think they amount to that much. One that I did think is maybe the first attempt at some kind of message making is um, Bob Crosby and his electric TV. Now, first thing that's interesting here is we've seen Bob Crosby before. Uh, very, very briefly in Ed the Happy Clown, he's actually the son and grandson, it seems, of the two pygmy hunters that uh, go off and stalk the um, the sewers while he sits home and watches TV. In fact, we even know what he was watching. He was watching, uh, apparently, uh, Satan preach to him through the television. Well, this one, which I think must have been written before that, um, is... Our, our hero Bob in front of the television. Uh, it goes for a couple pages, but basically the idea is that he becomes obsessed with it and he does whatever the advertisements tell him to do in this kind of uh, mesmerized way, uh, leading to him to throw the television out the window and then to actually go get another television just like it because he is so obsessed so I don't know that it's a, a strong, you know, message that we can um, really uh, says anything beyond the idea that the media is a problem. But it's um, you can start to see Brown working out larger political ideas. You know, they're starting to take shape here. Another series of comics is the stuff with the bunny and the gerbil. And there's a three of these, I think. We have um, Dirk the gerbil. We have uh, a late night snack and back to obedience school. So these are, you know, you know, funny animal comics, you know, just on one level. But because we've read other things like Helder and read the footnotes, we know that these are actually highly symbolic, that the gerbil represents his girlfriend and later, you know, close friend Chris, and the bunny represents uh, Chester himself. And that each one of these comics seems to be playing out some kind of, I don't know, fantasy or, or demonstration of their relationship. And it's a little disconcerting because they all end rather violently, uh, in Dirk the Gerbil, he just kind of is in a cage and dies. Um, and then in part two, you know, he is basically um, brought to a heaven-like place where Bunny puts him in his um, ultimate reward state, which is back in a cage, which seems to have some kind of ironic cruelty embedded in it. A late night snack is basically Bunny takes Gerbil in and they both end up being eaten by an owl, which seems to be violent and the Back to Obedience School is um, Gerbil has a rabid dog that ends up, I think, uh, eating Bunny. All of these leading to, I think, this kind of anxiety surrounding relationships that I think we've seen play out in several other of Brown's works. So I, I think that's interesting just as a kind of mode to play through, you know, some of his internal struggles, which I think a lot of these comics are. Um, in terms of the artist artistry, they're cute. <laughs> I think they're uh, probably higher grade than most of the things in this text. So um, I like them. Um, all right, what else do we have here? Moving along, 
Um, so I guess similar to that is My Old Neighbor, which is basically um, a very skinny, naked figure that I think has kind of the Chester Brown qualities, you know, um, going and, and the pronoun my in the title, um, going to what seems to be his old neighborhood, showing up at the door where an older woman with a gun basically shoots him in the head. That's about it. It's done in nine panels. Um, the, the, the woman with a gun reminds me of those huntresses in Ed the Happy Clown, which seems to be something there seems to be a kind of underlying emasculation going on here, which is a recurring motif in Brown. Um, and in the footnotes, uh, he tells uh, a little anecdote about how uh, the, his girlfriend at the time thought that this might, who was also an artist, it seems, thought that this might be a little allegory for um, their relationship and how he felt about her. Uh, he basically says, I uh, at the time denied it, but there might be something to it, which I thought was was interesting and honest. I like this play. I like when um, artists admit that, you know, th- there is something going on underneath the work. You know, so often you hear um, dodging of questions. You know, what is this about? Well, it's about whatever you want it to be about. It's a subjective experience. I always feel that's disingenuous, even if it's true. I like that Brown is open for interpretations. He's, uh, he's, um, it's, it's, I don't know, noble, I think, in, in a strange way. Something that is not noble is an authentic Inuit folk song. This comes off as very bad. Um, it's basically just sending up Inuit culture, I think, and all of its kind of, um, cliche trappings he does try and distance himself a little in the last panel where we can see that it's from the the panels that are essentially racist are from the point of view of a young child that uh that seems to be um you know proud of his work in the uh uh in the face of the the teacher's comments but i don't know that's that's pretty slight i don't think it's um doing too much beyond just uh being crass. The bottomless pit, or um, I live in the bottomless pit, which I think is a kind of send up of old, you know, 30s through 50s monster movies, um, in terms of aesthetic and title anyway, um, seems to be kind of um, anxiety ridden as well. You know, basically a guy ends up in a pit with a monster, we can't see it, it's all in black. Uh, but we get the sense that the monster can't escape and this guy is doomed to be with him for as long as he lives, which does not seem to be pretty long. So just the sense of kind of fear of the outside world, I think, is something that is always hovering around, if not explicitly being explored in in uh, Brown's work. Things to avoid stepping on, four panels, cute, I guess, and a little disturbing, um, a little bit gimmicky. Uh, I don't know. The The interesting thing about this is there is a panel that is uh, scatological. And apparently, I know this from Ed, uh, this was, uh, Ed Brown was asked to remove that panel or redo it. And that was what prompted him to get into some of the more scatological humor in Ed. I don't know that it works here, but it does work in Ed. You know, The Man Who Couldn't Stop is one of my favorite things in all of Brown's uh, catalog. Yeah, I'm on Help Me Dear Now. There's nothing really going on. You just kind of get um, two characters sitting in a living room with a dog. They're talking about the dog, but nobody's doing anything. It's just another, I think, send-up of kind of modern suburban life. I don't really know that it goes anywhere. And more nonsense, more kind of Ed-like, like aliens and such is, uh, is depicted in the Gourmets from Planet X, which is basically just a series of events that, that are absurdist. Um, no real message. Guy loses his nose and gets it back at the end. Just silliness. Um, an American story, I think, is the attempt at a kind of message piece it seems to be taking swipes at American culture, particularly gun culture. Well, I guess, you know, for, what is this, probably mid-80s, 
that this is 86, that this is probably a little ahead of its time, you know, playing with uh, guns in Disneyland as a target. I think it's probably cliche for today, though. Um, I don't know that it's aged very well. But, I don't know, Mickey Mouse shows up. He has a little cameo in the piece. Um, It's a little violent, a little silly. Uh, Then I think this starts to get interesting. I, I think everything up until this point was... You know, fine. It's it's good for a kind of completest perspective, but nothing that I would recommend in its own right. The twin starts, I think, a new kind of sense in Brown's sophistication. So this is adapted from um, Gnostic stories um, that are connected to the biblical Jesus. This depicts a story where... um, Jesus appears as both a kind of real version of himself and as this kind of mystical being. And at the end, we get this kind of merging of the two of them. Um, the sequence of the actual merge, I think, is, is really compelling. But in terms of messaging, I like the idea that we're getting into, I think, more important, lofty subjects material here. I imagine this is around the time that he's starting to get into the Bible renderings as well. But um, this this piece, I think, could fit in with, you know, his last work, uh, Jesus Wept at the Feet of Mary. I think I'm getting that title right. Um, it has a, a, I think, a mature sensibility. Well, he didn't write the work you know, so, you know, I don't want to give undue credit here, but I think his rendering of it is, is very sensitive and smart. Also, this, I think, does speak to the kind of secretive worlds that Brown is interested in. You know, like, this isn't urban, of course, but there is a sense that the, the Gnostic Bibles and Gnosticism in general is this kind of, um, underground or background society that is outside the mainstream. And I think Brown might be at his best when he is, where he is challenging the ideas of what is, what is deemed normal, quote unquote. Um, This will play itself out, I think, very much uh, more explicitly in the last piece in this book. Uh, My mother was a schizophrenic, but I'll get to that in a bit. Along similar lines, you get the um, anti-censorship propaganda piece, which is him explicitly being political, I think, for the first time. And this piece was apparently, according to footnotes, written for some kind of anti-censorship magazine. And, you know, I, I have very little knowledge of this, but... I have heard that censorship laws in Canada are far more rigid than they are in America, where I live. And um, I think that, uh, for instance, I think it's um, it's much easier to be uh, shut down um, if something is deemed um, not politically correct enough, if something is seen as offensive then it is that that Canada does not have the same central freedom of speech sensibility in the same way. And given that context, I thought this was a pretty bold, you know, statement. Basically, we have two politicians. They are um, naked and 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 pudgy. They 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 look kind of like humunculi more so than actual real renderings of humans. And they have gigantic penises, which is interesting. There are several uh, strange penis things in this book. This is, I think, the first of them. Um, so you have to contend with the idea that you are seeing something that is could be deemed offensive or inappropriate. But uh, he has this little note in the front that says, I would like to state up front that it is not my intention that anyone be sexually stimulated by the following comic strip. And if anyone is, it's not my fault. These are grotesque figures, I think, purposely. So I I like that kind of push. You know, I I think it's clever. You know, it's not simply, um, you know, what they're saying, which I think is is clever and dead on as well. It's the kind of challenge of the visuals. I think that's... um, you know, I, I always like uh, comics that 
say as much with the cartooning as they do with the the language of the stories. This is a good example of that. But basically, we end up, you know, looking at the corruption of politicians, the idea that they don't even believe in the anti-censorship propaganda that they are going to put out, but they'll do it because it is expedient for their political careers. Um, You know, maybe it's an easy target, but I think it is something that is absolutely true and worthy of ridicule. The next piece is this very quiet piece that um, seems to only be titled in the last empty, you know, space. It's not even a panel. The afternoon of March 3rd, 1988. And basically what you get is a picture of Chris, who is his friend or girlfriend at the time. It's unclear. And just, you know, four pictures of various aspects of what seems to be his room. I think you can tell that it's the room that is... Um, dramatized in the next story, Helder. But this is done in a, in a very realistic way. This might be the most um, visually realistic piece that Brown has done, that I've seen anyway. Um, there's something kind of honest and beautiful about it. It's um, Although the, the figure of Chris is beautifully wrought, I don't think it over-romanticizes. It just tries to get at the reality. She's actually lying on the bed, looking very similar to how... She is depicted, I think it's at the end of the Playboy, right? Kind of lounging out. At the, at the time of discussing that, I thought that he was trying to do something by comparing her, this kind of realistic image, to the women that he talks about in the actual Playboy. But this makes me rethink that. It could be just that she is somebody that took naps often in his bedroom, and that's how he kind of remembers her, means to capture her artistically. But it is a beautiful rendering. And even the the um, panels that just show his art tools or the window with, it seems to be the um, slight raindrops outside, just ha- are, are very evocative. Um, yeah, very nice. I like that that cartoon very much. Okay, now we get into, I think, um, the longer pieces that start to get explicitly more biographical in nature. The first one is Helder. And I think Helder's very good. We get um, the Chester Brown you know, figure here. I don't know if it's the first time this will show up. My guess is that it probably is. Um, And he talks directly to the audience in a series of, well, it's not a series. They're kind of scattered throughout the comic. But every now and then the action breaks and it's his face looking at us telling, uh, kind of narrating the scene. This is, I think, very reminiscent of Joe Matt. I made that point, I think, last time about, uh, or during the Playboy, about his shift in mindset about the comics and where he should go with this. But... This is explicitly Joe Maddish in the sense that Joe Matt draws a lot of comics where it is just the, the kind of autobiographical rendering of the figure looking at the, looking at the reader, talking directly. So I think this will probably come through in a little more sophisticated fashion, a little more specific to uh, Brown's needs when we get into the Playboy and we get the, um, the little... Uh, Jiminy Cricket consciousness figure that narrates the story. Um, that's a little more, I think, authentic and, and creative. But I, I like this as a kind of stepping stone, you know, trying to work those things out. In terms of the story, um, the story is, you know, pretty just slice of life, you know, this event when he's living in this kind of rooming house and this kind of um, abusive and and obstinate character named Helder that kind of comes in and out of his life. Um, There is a a kind of confrontation and there is a kind of menace surrounding him, which uh, surrounding Helder, that is um, menacing Brown and other characters in the story that I think is consummate with a lot of Brown's interests. You know, he's somebody that is um, always looking at power dynamics and who the innocent underdog is and the kind of sense of, of male aggression. Uh, we saw it, I think, in every work. There is uh, some aspect of that. Um, maybe not the Playboy, but 
Certainly it's in the kind of slight bullying that happens in I Never Liked You. It's, it's rampant in Ed the Happy Clown and all the horrible things that happen to Ed. But you can see that being played out here, you know. Um, and, you know, it's pretty harrowing when, when he has to, you know, walk away or be defended by his girlfriend Chris at certain points or his friend Chris. Um, you know, you, you can really feel a kind of pathos underlying this that I think is uh, very honest and very well done. So, you know what Helder actually reminds me of as I look at, it, as I look at the panel right now? It's very similar to the uh, the punk rock guy in Ed the Happy Clown. I, I made the point that, um, that uh, I, I didn't find that to be typical of the punk rock guys that I grew up with in the 80s and 90s, but... Um, but uh, Helder kind of sells that a little bit. Uh, Helder being this kind of like, you know, hipster guy that is, is unpredictable, that, you know, you don't really know where you stand with ever. I kind of, uh, I feel like that's a, a more honest rendering of this kind of um, casual aggression. But they're both functioning the same way to kind of menace our protagonist in some way. So Helder's fine. I actually think showing Helder which comes after it and is actually longer and more involved is the better work. They, they need each other to function. But this one seems to be breaking away from Helder in a lot of ways. The first is stylistically, right, where Helder tells a kind of, you know, typical story that is paneled and sequenced. Showing Helder, which is the story of him literally showing his completed work Helder, um, has no borders. Brown actually talks about this in the footnotes, how he constructed this and why he did this, that um, he wanted the, the, the images to come first and be bordered later, that there was something more authentic uh, to that strategy, which I totally appreciate. Um, I'm surprised that more artists don't work in this mode. You know, uh, this seems to be him, I think, really following his instincts in a mature, sophisticated way. But what it does is it gives you a sense of your eyes kind of dancing around any individual page more freely. There's, there's a kind of openness and a sense of whimsy that he captures here. And I think the story itself is more free and open and and fun. It doesn't even though it does have its own anxieties, the anxieties are different. The anxieties in this are about being an artist, about criticism, about um, you know hurting people through your art, as opposed to the kind of physical sense of menace in Helder. But I think they're both anxieties that can be compared. There's, I don't know, a looser sense here. There's a more kind of sense of being... Um, uh, being philosophical about it rather than kind of just simply reporting on it uh, that the, the panels create, right? The panels and their their placement dictate to the reader a, a clear, specific path. This is, this is more free and open. I like this very much. So speaking to some of those, those issues, though, um, you get several times his interactions with, you know, various people that he wants opinions from based on the art. And he gets interesting ideas here. One guy tells him, you know, to go with it. Everything's fine. One guy says there's all kinds of problems with it. Chris, who is a subject of the piece and sees herself, uh, challenges his very right to perform this. You know, um, she even says, if you don't um, if you don't change something, I'm not going to let you um you know, render me in comics anymore, even though apparently that's what she asked for. So you get this kind of sense of an artist's morality or an artist's duty to their own artistic vision. Chester, I think, you know, to his merits, or at least the character Chester in this piece, I think is very sensitive to everybody's wishes. Um, you know, but I think the artist Chester wants to us to think about the, you know, who has the right in an art piece, particularly an autobiography, to tell that story? And what does that mean? I think it's particularly clever because 
of what Chris actually challenges. She challenges slight details, not really what the story is about in a larger sense or what the message is. She, she says, what, what is this? What are these clothes you have me in? And later she quibbles about, you know, I would have said this, not this exactly, you know, just a change of a couple words. Um, so, you know, you get this sense of her loss of control being depicted by Chester and Chester really kind of grappling with that. I think it's, um, I think it's pretty, pretty well done. I, I you know, I, I've seen other pieces of art that play with, you know, similar notions, but um, I really think this one is done very subtly. Um, there's also this kind of sense of the problem of memory that underlies it too. You know, we have to question at all times an artist's ability to capture truth. You know, I, I think I'm trying to do that often when I, I talk about these works or when I talk about any art to say that this is an interpretation. You know, this is not the thing. The Chester in any one of these stories is not the Chester that is writing the piece. They're separate and apart. Um, the best we can get kind of rendered on the page is memory. Um, but we know that that's fleeting, that that's always a problem to, to, to some degree. Okay. So after this, we get the little man and I guess I'm going to argue that the rest of these works are start to be very experimental um, with, with the form. So the little man is basically starts off with what seems to be a kind of autobiographical realist piece and becomes stranger and stranger, particularly surrounding, uh, young Chester's penis. Again, another penis issue, um, where, where it gets yanked and pulls larger and larger so that he can actually use it as a, a helicopter blade and fly. It becomes very, very odd. And then ends with realism as well. And you get this sense of a kind of fluid in and out. I, I, I guess I'm, I would say that it almost has a, a magical realist appeal where you're not really sure where, how you're supposed to interact with the fantasy components of it. But within it, um, you know, it begins with this kind of anxiety of being um, called out in class by the teacher that wants to know what's in his pocket and humiliates him as she pulls his penis out of it and stretches it and they have this confrontation. Um, strangely, I actually think that the teacher looks very much like his mother, which uh, appears at the end of this piece and who we've seen in, uh, you know, throughout um, the Playboy and... Do we see her in the Playboy? Yeah, the Playboy and uh, particularly in I Never Liked You. But... Um, you know, so so you get this kind of Oedipal sensibility. Uh, there's even a scene where the teacher wants to cut it off in front of the class. So you have this kind of uh, castration anxiety being played out. I mean, I think it's being played out for laughs. It's meant to be humorous. But it um, it still is, is somewhat terrifying. Uh, Chester himself calls it my little man, you know, which... Um, you know, is something he, he cares for is a, is a, a statement that he has affection for this and the idea of losing it becomes a problem. The, the story gets crazier and crazier and ends up with a principal being killed and, and, and mayhem ensuing, uh, ensuing with the cops and then ends in this very strange domestic scene where Chester is, is walking home after this incident and, and comes uh, brings a friend home and is confronted by his mother who, you know, politely asks the friend to leave and says to Chester, um, I, I don't feel right. And, you know, um, you know, basically apologizes for, for not uh, being more hospitable and Chester essentially walking to the toilet and urinating. <laughs> um, you know, so you end with this kind of quiet domesticity so I was thinking a lot about this. What is it all about? And, and why is this story so important that it becomes the title of the whole collection? Well, I think this is a story that most captures what the artist is doing, that what Brown is doing, you know, this kind of move from, 
from the real to the surreal and back to the real, this kind of book ending of the real is how the artist lives his life. You know, um, even though the, the, the sequence of the story seems to take for granted that all of this happens in one storyline in one kind of, kind of universe. Um, it might as well happen in his imagination. It might as well be his thoughts about, about what life could be, the possibilities of it while he sits in a desk in his class and the teacher performs her lesson. Um, the, the seamlessness highlights that, you know, or, or I think um, highlights the mind of the artist that is always living with kind of, you know, one foot in the realm of fantasy, one foot in the kind of creative process. So I think it's smart. The idea that 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 can be dashed, though, I think is is very moving. You know, the idea that you can return home, you know, maybe he was about to write that that story down. Maybe he wants to turn into a comic or something. But life gets in the way and the best laid schemes, um, you know, don't play out the way you want them to. So it ends up being this kind of, you know, quiet sense of isolation and, you know, living with, you know, the mother that's ill and all of the unpleasantness that comes with that. So I I think, you know, as silly as it gets, it really does have uh, something very smart to say. Uh, This is one of the better things in this book, I think, The Little Man. So again, I think that's why it is the title of the piece, because, um, you know, it it has to say something about, about the artist artistic process. Why The Little Man? I don't know, but it makes me recall the um, Jiminy Cricket-like figure from the Playboy that is a, a little version of, of Brown. Um, that, in a sense, is a little man, that narrator that knows more than the character in the story knows, that can, can articulate you know, the more important aspects of who he is his subconscious self or the motivations that he can't see at the time, but can see in retrospect, given the bird's eye perspective of being able to fly above. I think in some way it's, it's the same thematic kind of idea being played out. Another comic I I really like, I I do like these more and more as you get more mature um, is the weird Canadian artist, which is also a kind of statement of, artistic selfhood. The Canadian artist is obviously a rendering of Chester Brown. And this goes in two parts. Part one, 1973, you get um, this confessional story of Brown, you know, using one of those old, um, God, I don't know what you call it, old uh, notebook pad type things where you could trace out a scene and pull a plastic film and the the idea would go away. It talks about his, how he used to trace comics and make them against appear naked so that he can masturbate to them. So it has all this. And it talks, I think that story just kind of sets up this idea of the kind of base nature of artistry. You know, we tend to think of the artist as this elevated form, this truth speaker. Um, here he kind of confesses that sometimes it's just about, you know, doing, you know, strange things to amuse yourself or to, you know, get through the day. So this kind of taking down of, of artistry or artistry being used for different purposes, I think is, is clever in its own right. But then it gets even better because we get to part two that is circa 2050, where you get these strange um, creatures uh, that are, essentially going on a mission to find Chester Brown, who has become this kind of great legendary artist to kind of seek him out. He's reclusive and they want to know the, you know, this, the secrets of it all. And, uh, he's won, uh, Pulitzer's and Nobel, Nobel prizes and such. And what they end up finding is an old man that is on his last legs in front of his drawing table, um, seemingly dead and, uh, the last work he is he is putting out for the world is Supergirl taking her costume off. You know, even after, you know, all of the acclaim of the artist and even possibly reaching those great heights of, of idealized artistry, 
still at core, you are that same adolescent, you know, or that art still has the ability to, to be both high and low in general. I like that. I, I like the kind of bold cross section of high and low, uh, you know, not to get too self-congratulatory, but one of the things that we've always talked about during this, this podcast is that we have to take everything seriously, you know, whether it's the goon or, you know, James Joyce, the, the analysis and the spirit which we enter into it should be the same, you know, that, that I think I, I do reject the idea of, of low art being this, this base thing for mass appeal and high art being, you know, something that is um, ivory towered and, and elitist. Um, I think some of the ivory tower stuff is terrible and some of the the basis stuff is brilliant. You know, we have to view this stuff in terms of its aesthetic merit. I think people cower from that a lot because it's hard. It's, it's really hard to have a, a true aesthetic vision for something. Um, it's easy to, to put things into simple categories to be dismissed or lauded, you know, outside of their merits. Brown, I think, understands that. And I think this comic gets at it very nicely. All right. Maybe I like this a little more than I thought, this, this collection. Well, these end ones anyway. I still think I'm right about the, uh, the first half of this book. Danny's story, I thought, was, uh, was strangely experimental, too, in its story arc, or I guess kind of like lack of story arc. The first half of it is basically just like the morning routine of Brown, um, you know, laying in bed, the, the the radio that goes off with his alarm keeps going off, it seems, and he, he's kind of listening to it in the background as the news plays. But basically, he just goes to the bathroom and gets changed and lazes around and doesn't do too much. He picks his nose, a la James Joyce, speaking of James Joyce, well, a la Stephen Daedalus anyway, and um, until we get a knock on the door. But that's like eight pages in, and we're expecting, I guess, at this point, Something to happen, you know, that that the, the title of this is Danny's story. We haven't met Danny yet, and we finally meet Danny. And Danny ends up to be just this kind of uh, guy that that is lonely and wants to talk uh, to Chester about anything that's on his mind. And that doesn't end with any kind of a... Uh, well, the story that he tells doesn't have any kind of real purpose or excitement surrounding it. it it's almost this kind of anti-story, you know? I, I kind of like this. Um, it does end oddly, and I guess with a little bit of excitement, when when Danny becomes a little bit um, angry that Chester is blowing him off, and he tries to reach his hand and stop Chester from closing his door, and Chester bites him. I thought that was odd, and my first thought was, did he really bite him, or is this kind of some kind of artistic stroke? In the footnotes, Chester Brown says, yeah, I did bite him. So I guess there is a, a kind of strange edge um, to, to Brown that, uh, that I've never seen rendered before in the comics. You know, he seems to be somebody that is, um, thoroughly, uh, pacifist, but, uh, here we get another side of him, which I think is, uh, compelling. Okay. The next story is titleless, uh, for the most part. The only text in here is, uh, the knock, knock on the door. And in the, um, on the contents page, it is titled uh, as Knock Knock, but there is no explicit um, title sequence on page 142 to disclose that. But basically, this is a kind of surreal fantasy tale of uh, a naked woman trying to enter into what seems to be a kind of walled city contextualized by a desert. It looks very similar, actually, to um, the city that uh, Daenerys and her crew uh take uh, respite in in Game of Thrones. I don't know, season three maybe? I don't know. Um, I don't actually love Game of Thrones, but I have seen it all. But it looks kind of like that. Um, I don't know, maybe uh, George uh, Martin read this and uh, read his Chester Brown and was uh, inspired by it. Probably not. But uh, this is good. I mean, the thrust of this seems to be that um, that this girl although she seems to have powers and access to this place, um, 
Well, no, I guess she does kind of enter it and goes to the middle of it. It seems to be largely uninhabited, but she finds a tree and embraces the tree and the tree becomes entangled with her and essentially becomes a male figure that looks very much like Chester Brown. And it becomes this kind of love story. Um, They are left alone. The city is gone. And it seems to be all about the two of them and their affection for each other. The very last panel has a little dedication. This is drawn for Sukin um, and the date. Sukin, apparently his girlfriend at the time. So this becomes a kind of uh, love letter to her. Um, it, it's it's interesting. I, I think it's, uh, it's very well done artistically and um, as a kind of intimate uh, portrait of, of their uh, romance. I think it's nice. Uh, the footnotes talk about how um, Brown's first inclination was not to publish it, but he was encouraged to by some friends and ended up doing it. I'm glad he did. So the last story here, I think it's the last story. Yes, it is, is um, my mom was a schizophrenic. And this one, I think, is the one that takes us to the next level. This is the thing that seems to be Brown right on the edge of being historical and research-based and I think taking on his most kind of mature sense of comic artistry. So basically, in terms of rendering, um, similar to Helder, we have Brown, the character, confronting the audience in this kind of polemic where he is basically challenging modern psychology, right? And to do it, he cites a bunch of different anti-psychology figures from the second half of the 20th century and states their point of view. Um, it's a little more sophisticated than Helder, though. You have these, these um, little symbolic touches, like in the first three um, panels of him, there's a TV, he pushes the TV over, and then the TV seems to break up. You get um, juxtaposed, you know, uh, figures talking directly to us. You get a, um, a board that he, uh, with, uh, with the five signs of being a schizophrenic, um, that he pushes over. So you get this kind of interaction, uh, visual interaction, that I think is, is a step more sophisticated than Helder is, but you can see Helder being a kind of um, building block towards this. There's another sequence where we just get these kind of um, what city little little like snapshots, um, smokestacks, and a car with a semi-flat tire that don't necessarily go with what's being said, but have but are evocative of a kind of general sensibility or a general tonality. You know, that I, I think is very smart. I, I think my mom is a schizophrenic is excellent. And among Brown's best work as a stylistic kind of um, rendering. The message, however, I have a little bit of a problem with. I do have a degree in psychology. Um, and I am sensitive to an anti-psychology point of view, even despite studying it for quite a while. But... I think a lot of Brown's ultimate conclusions are a little bit overly simplistic. In his footnotes, his footnotes on this story alone are several pages. Um, and he talks about responding to people's responses to the story. And, and I get the sense that he's very passionate about this, or at least he was at the time of writing this. And that that passion comes from specific events of his mother's life and her schizophrenia. And it seems like his opinions are very well researched. And I actually, I actually think that every, every point he makes, I agree with. Like all of the, all of the 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 different um, studies and all of the psychologists, they all make sense to me. I mean, that that basic point being that, you know, what normal is is a construct normal in quotes, quote unquote normal. And the idea that somebody is ill or schizophrenic or maybe other kinds of um, psychological, um, you know, issues um, from the point of view of the quote unquote normal world, 
um, are constructs as well. That it's it's kind of society's inability to to cope with things that are different that wants to define them as other and fix them or or ostracize them, institutionalize them. And there's a kind of inherent injustice underlying that. And I think a lot of those things are true. Where it becomes oversimplified, though, is this almost denial of a sense that modern psychology can be helpful. You know, I I think there is a place for both to exist, where you can both be very sensitive to, you know, um, conditions that were once considered aberrant, and we can do our best to accommodate them. But I think he discounts that there are many people that benefit greatly from modern psychology. And again, I don't want to be an apologist for modern psychology uh, 100%. I do think there are, you know, great problems that underlie it, you know, particularly the kind of eagerness to diagnose and solve pharmaceutically. Not that I'm against that. I just think it might be too quick and too often the case. But he seems to be denying that as ever a positive option. And I, I think that not only is that wrongheaded and overly simplistic, it might even be a little dangerous um, to not allow the other possibility or, or not allow that voice. So I do appreciate a good polemic. I do like when somebody stands up on a soapbox and, and states their, their point of view and is, is unapologetic about it. Um, but yeah, I, I think the conclusions he makes are just a little too rigid here. I like that this exists. I, I'm not trying to be overly critical of it at all. I, I think it's it's one of my favorite Chester Brown things I think I've said already. Um, and it's very sensitively thought through. It just might be a little bit closed-minded for my specific tastes. So that being said, that kind of ends the um, the meat of... of this book, uh, there is something uh, very cute on the uh, the back cover as well, which is basically um, the brown figure uh, looking uh, more bald and more, I think, contemporaneous for when this uh, this work was put out. I don't know what is that two thousand and uh, when was two thousand six? It seems whenever this was put out, but him talking to some uh, a group of three aliens about this work and whether or not. Uh, this is a, a good, um, he is a good representation of, uh, of great art and, uh, and him kind of selling them on, on whether or not to buy it. He kind of embeds in it the, uh, the sense of the barcode and uh, the price and makes it part of the narrative. So I think as just a kind of formal experiment uh, on book design, the kind of front cover and the back cover, you know, work pretty, pretty well. You know, the... Um, the front cover being a kind of modern critique of his earliest work and evoking all of that, and the back being this kind of um, modern sense of who he is now and and you know a kind of vision of himself as an artist that has been through this whole kind of catalog of of different uh, periods. Uh, growing and maturing as an artist. So overall, this is probably going to go down as my least favorite uh, Chester Brown work, but I still think it is worthwhile. I think probably, you know, for those couple things at the end, particularly the uh, Canadian artist, Little Man, um, Showing Helder, and my mom was a schizophrenic, it it is, uh, as he says on the back, it is well worth the uh, $15 or so to um to to be a completist and enjoy this this work thoroughly enjoy the work of Chester Brown thoroughly so there you go that basically will end our discussions of the kind of early brown work the um the yummy fur era so moving ahead we go into i think the second um the second or i guess the third uh, era of Brown, you know, the, the, the sense of him being a kind of historicist or him being a um, philosophy kind of politically minded 
artist with uh, Louis Rael. I think I'm saying that right. I better look into it before next week. But um, I'm looking forward to reading that. It'll be my first time. So hopefully you'll be with me and um, we'll check it out. Thanks. Thanks.